What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today, for episode 34, we're returning to Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time, diving into the first third of The Shadow Rising, book four. I am your host, as usual, Rob Santos. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? We have returning special guest with us, Captain Jared Livingston. Oh yeah, what's up guys? <laughs> and making another podcast debut, at least as far as the uh, the regularly scheduled episodes go, Mr. Peter Goble is with us. What's up, Peter? Hey, doing good, how are you? I'm awesome, thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, now, real quickly, before we jump straight into the episode, I want to remind everyone that our discussion today will be slightly different from the past few episodes, as one of our guests is reading this series for the first time, and he's offering us the chance to watch him watch this series unfold. So, because of this, obviously, we're going to avoid any spoilers for anything past The Shadow Rising. So, now that introductions are out of the way, I'm going to pass off to Drew here so that we can get a recap of everything that we've read up to this point in the first third. Drew, blast this off, man! Yeah, so uh, this this book really hits the ground running with, uh, you know, some, some standard uh, what's going on elsewhere. We get Min... Uh, arriving at the White Tower, and we get, uh, you know, some glimpses as to what the White Cloaks are up to going into the Two Rivers, but then right away we get our uh, Bubble of Evil, our three-pronged Bubble of Evil in the Stone of Tear, where Perrin's axe attacks him, and Matt's cards attack him, and Rand's reflections come to life, and uh, from there it kind of moves into a a lot of establishing what this new... uh, order is in tier where rand is is a ruler and he's just kind of learning how to handle things he's got tom and warren giving him advice and uh and everybody's kind of trying to find their feet in in what seems like a new world and uh and so yeah they they kind of are are all sorting out their their particular relationships we have a really cool scene where uh, rand and matt and warren all go through the uh redstone doorway to Rongreal and, and get their answers from the Aelfin. And we get a fantastic attack, Shadow Spawn attack, on the Stone of Tear. Rand uses Kalendor. Lanfear reveals herself for the first time uh, to Rand. You know, we, we now have on the page confirmation that Selene is Lanfear. And uh, from there, after fighting off that attack, Rand makes his decision that he's going to the Aiel Waste and he plants Kalendor back in the heart of the stone. And meanwhile, uh, Nynaeve and Elaine decide that they are going to head off to Tanchico to follow one of the two Black Aja leads they're given. And that's pretty much where we uh, leave off. Yeah. Yeah, a really, really interesting first part of the book. As you said, it does really kind of hit the ground running. I remembered this being somewhat close to the beginning, but I, I will admit that I don't remember our first points of view from each of our main three characters literally being that bubble of evil. Like, it, I mean, it was literally the first thing we got from each of those characters. And it really kind of gave, like, it kicked the novel off on this really sort of dark and mysterious and kind of dangerous vibe. Like, we don't really know at this point what exactly is happening. We see the axe attacking Perrin. We see, like, reality itself bending as as Matt's cards, or at least the faces on Matt's cards are attacking him, and Rand's reflections are jumping out of the mirrors and literally trying to kill him with his own weapon, too. It's it's really kind of ominous, and it's spooky. Uh, I want to get Jared and Peter's opinion on this, too, especially Peter having read this for the first time. What did you guys think of the start of this novel? Yeah, I'd say yeah. what I 
What I, I said before. <laughs> I should have actually said one person to start. Yeah, sorry, guys. Go ahead, Peter. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, it was definitely an interesting way to uh, kick things off. You kind of get the inciting incident right away there. Um, I didn't really know what was going on, but I was excited. And so that was um, a nice way to open the book with some of these books starting at a little bit of a slower pace, but this one jumping out of the gate, as you said. Yeah, I've always viewed it as in this book, we are really raising the stakes for the first time. And I think both, the, you know, the scenes with the bubble of evil, Lanfear revealing herself, attack on the stone, these are all raising the stakes that you know, the shadow is out for real now. Yeah, and and I have a you know a couple of you know writing ideas on how Robert Jordan opened this book, and I think one of the uh, the takeaways here is that we are four books into the series now. You know, we're almost three thousand pages of Wheel of Time content in. We know our characters. We don't really need to you know get to you know get to know them anymore. You know, we, sure. obviously we're gonna we're gonna grow with them, but we know Rand and we know Matt and we know Parent, and so Robert Jordan I think felt comfortable opening their plot lines with action because he knows that readers at this point are already invested in these characters. They know them, they like them, they're rooting for them, and he can just open up with a life-threatening situation. Whereas if the first book opened up with this scene. Readers would a be lost and b wouldn't necessarily care about what happens to these characters. They don't know them. They don't know whether or not they should root for them. You know, and and I think as uh, we saw in Dragon Reborn, and and we're gonna see going forward in this series, Robert Jordan finds a comfort zone with uh, putting his characters into early book life threatening situations because he can trust that the readers will be immediately engaged and will really care whether or not these characters live or die. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, sure. Uh, sorry, I was just kind of uh, totally uh, brain farting there. Uh, I'm just realizing here that um, all of my style points, it looks like I've actually erased them by accident here, so I'm actually going to have to go off by memory here. Um, but yeah, like the start of this book gives us a lot a lot to digest and a lot to look forward to with what's coming because this is as Craig Hanks just said that he was on our last episode our last two episodes actually this is his favorite book and I think I agree this is my favorite book because of how much is happening in in these what you said 800 900 pages this is one of the largest wheel of time books I think it might be like the oh, second yeah, this one's longest over a thousand. yeah I it's think the longest I, it's the longest more so than Lord of yeah. Chaos it is longer than Lord of Chaos damn Damn, there you go. Higher uh, higher word count. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, every single word deserves its time on page. There's just so much to be taken here. Uh, I kind of want to just kind of dive right into our characters, but I want to make sure there's nothing that we have, stylistically speaking, that Drew wants to get out of the way before we do so. Well, uh, the last sort of style thing, and, and maybe this is more of like a high-level strategy thing okay. when it comes to writing, is the way... Um, yeah, as we've talked on previous episodes, the way Robert Jordan uses point of view to build tension 
Mm. Uh, you know, in, in the Dragon Reborn, for instance, it was all about using Perrin as our main point of view character and only giving us tidbits of Rand. So we have the chase and, and we have this mystery around Rand's motivations. But in this, um, it's all about using point of view to expand the world, but also to leave questions remaining. And, and in a microcosm, that bubble of evil scene is exactly that where we have each of the three characters experiencing this bubble of evil, and then afterward, Moiraine explains it, right? So throughout, we don't know what's going on. But even inside of not knowing what's going on, Rand is the third one of them. He's the last one. So with Perrin and with Matt, both of them immediately assume Rand is going crazy. He's doing this. And so we have to think as readers, oh my gosh, Rand is doing this. Yeah, but I have then, to say, like, reading it for the first time, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Really? And, and it's only when we get to Rand's point of view and the same thing happens to him that we realize, oh, Rand was asleep this whole time. He didn't do this. This is something totally different. Yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't, I don't recall having that particular impression on my first read, but then again, my first read was... Jesus, 15 years ago at yeah. this point. Yeah. So I could have, you know, I could be totally misremembering. I just, because, you know, uh, I think it may, it might have been Matt or Perrin. I, I, you know, now that I think on it, it might have been Rand, who immediately thought, okay, this has to be one of the Forsaken. And I thought, I, that was where I was. I was like, this has to it's be Rand. one of the Forsaken. Yeah. Okay, so if, if it was Rand thinking that, then I can see absolutely what you were saying. Just getting this from Matt and then, you know, previously Perrin, having no further context. I can see why you'd think it was Rand. I don't recall thinking it was Rand, but it, it if it smells like it, looks like it, tastes like it, you know? Yeah. It's right. it's not an it's not an inaccurate assumption to make, or at least not an uninformed assumption to make. Yeah. Yeah, and and so, you know, going forward throughout this, we have other points just in this first third where we have maybe unusual point of view choices from Robert Jordan where key scenes are viewed from characters you wouldn't expect like yes in this scene when rand announces i'm leaving and drives the sword back into the stone you know that's not from rand's point of view right it's from warren's point of view yeah it's like which is which is strange you know we don't get many warren povs in in these books like i mean she got one you know paragraph at the end of eye of the world she got like maybe 10 15 pages in the great hunt did she get anything at all in dragon reborn i don't remember i don't think you she know, did. Like, and why do you think why do you think it is that this was the scene that robert jordan did, decided to you know depict from warren's point of view what was it about this scene i i think it's because um a it helps us um get a little more of an idea of Moiraine's personality and how she reacts when things go out of her control. Because for the most part, she drives events through the first three books, right? And then and then sometimes she has to chase after Rand and adapt to what he's doing. But, uh, but even in the context of that, like when she's chasing Rand with Perrin and Loyal and Fael and Lan in the Dragon Reborn, Moiraine is still dictating how they are going to approach that chase. And this is really the first time here that Moiraine doesn't have a plan anymore. 
Rand made a decision that was so far out of left field that Warren is is off, you know, off in no man's land. Yeah. She she's in uncharted territory here. So we get to see her sort of internal panic when she's like, "What is he doing? What what is going on here?" Because her whole plan was to have Rand invade Alien. Yeah. <laughs> she was trying to interpret the prophecies of the dragon a certain way in a, in a manner that she thought Rand could handle, you know? Whereas Rand's just like, well, for the first time, I have complete agency. I'm the ruler here. I'm in charge. I can do what I want. And he chooses, uh, you know, to pull a decision out of the hat and go to the IEO waste. And keep it from her. And while, yeah, and, and exactly. And, and he hides it from her. And so she finds out at the same time as everybody else. And I think that's a um, an important thing. You know, I was... Just yesterday, I was on the uh, Dusty Wheel, uh, Matt Hatch's YouTube oh, yeah. show, and one of the things we talked about was this idea of future knowledge in The Shadow Rising, and how characters wrestle with future knowledge, and and how it can inform their actions, but also really shape their personalities. And one of the things that we, we talked about within that was how Moiraine has a certain type of conflict... And if we're going to go back to the same, you know, the, the classic trope, you know, man versus man, man versus nature, you know, that kind of stuff. Moiraine's character conflict really comes down to man versus knowledge, or in Moiraine's case, woman versus knowledge, you know. And this is a point where she doesn't have the knowledge. It's one of the few times, because, you know, her whole life up to this point is being driven by this foretelling that she's gotten from Guitar Morosa. Yeah. She knows that the dragon is back and, 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 you know, and so she, she's finally reached a point where the dragon has kind of come to his public fruition where Rand is now a ruler. He wields Kalendor. There's no denying it. And, uh, and Maureen no longer has any more future knowledge. She tries to go off of the prophecies, which she's clearly studied extensively. And she wants to interpret them a certain way because she doesn't know how to act without a certain kind of future knowledge. And so when Rand rips that interpretation of future knowledge out from underneath her, Moiraine is lost. And it's not until a little later in this book that she finds a new foundation to build off of. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add on top of that and say I think another big... Uh, boon that we got out of this scene is is viewing the intricate sort of dangerous political situation in Tyr from another point of view entirely. Uh, Moiraine, of course, being Kyrienne, being a Kyrienne noble, as we found out. I think it was in this book we found out, right? When Tom Marilyn uh, confronted her about that. Um, she, yes. she grew up living and breathing Deus de Mar, the game of houses, right? And so we get to see a whole lot of things happening behind the scenes that Rand or our other characters, for the most part, are completely unaware of. Like, for example, we got a little bit out of it with Tom Marilyn's brief point of view, but the danger that the Lady Altima represents. And, yeah. you know, that entire delicate situation you know like the way that we get to view all of this filtered through Moiraine's eyes was was something that I think serves going forward as a reminder that you know Rand's power 
though intimidating, is not absolute. And a lot of people are going to put their own interests ahead of what they interpret to be the prophecies, the Koreathon cycle. So I, this scene in particular that we're still talking about with Moraine, I think it was very poignant. I think, it, I mean, it was well done. You can't argue that. This is Robert Jordan, after all. Um, but yeah, like going back and reading it, it's just, it's, God, there's just so much to be taken from it. Well, isn't she are also getting some concrete knowledge when she gets answers going through the redstone doorway? She does, yeah. And and so this is uh, going back to my earlier point about like how she has to find new ways to apply future knowledge. She her knowledge from the redstone doorway that we're given, or that she's given here, it, she's still trying to operate on within the context of her interpretation of the prophecies. And it, it won't be till later that she gets a different brand of information that she can then, you know, really start applying and, and putting puzzle pieces together. Um, but uh, Peter, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so you've only read this book once. Uh, did this book or did this scene stand out to you in your read through? Yeah, the scene where Rand announces his decision to mm -hmm. uh, go into the Isle Waste. It absolutely stood out to me. And this is probably one of my favorite Rand moments to this point, if not my very favorite Rand moment to this point. And one of the things that I really love about it is not just that it's, you know, this big unexpected news, but it's unexpected in a way that you can totally understand given what we've learned about Rand over the past three books. I mean, Rand and the others from the Two Rivers, I mean, they're from a small farm community. Rand was a farmer, a shepherd. Um, very different lifestyle than those of the uh, High Lords who are used to playing uh, Deus de Mar. It, it's just something that he's totally uncomfortable with, and they, they have completely different moral compasses. I would argue, perhaps, that Rand's points at least closer to North than a lot of these High Lords. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's fun to watch him uh, put them in their place in, in that sense. Oh, yeah, especially going back to that, you know, early scene with Matt playing cards with the sons of the High Lords, and they're all complaining about how, oh, no, we're liable before the law. We can't just, like, rape chambermaids and, and peasant women anymore. Like, we, we actually have to behave ourselves, and, and it's this huge travesty to oh, them no. that laws can apply to them. And, it's, and, and, then, <laughs> and then, of course, Matt is, like, you know, not... not cool with that and, and they start kind of realizing like oh maybe we should uh we should sh sh shut up around matt about this like except for Estan, you know esteen however you pronounce his name <laughs> esteen yeah god what um, a character that guy is yeah i really like kind of how cheeky rand gets at certain points with the high lords and oh, even yeah. if you think about him the way that he is driving calendar into the stone and leaving it and in a very cheeky manner, telling Moraine that he would like to see someone try and pull it out who shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also like how, uh, going back to this idea of Moiraine's point of view for that, that big scene with Rand's announcement, um, we know that Moiraine has been trying to advise him, but we've also gotten hints that Tom has been advising him and that Rand has, in fact, been seeking out that advice. And so many of Rand's decisions in this scene were 
if not Tom's idea, at least driven by Tom's advice. And so from Warren's point of view here, we're getting to see her react to how Tom plays the game of houses. Yeah. And I like that a lot. I yeah. love the line when Tom walks in on her and it's something yeah. like she strained up as if she had the perfect right to be rifling through <laughs> her box. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, you got to admire that, you know, about Moiraine. She's just, she has, I mean, figuratively speaking, she has balls. Doesn't she? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, she she has that, that bearing, that sort of, like, I have the divine right to yeah. do whatever I yeah, want. We're, like. <laughs> we're going over so many character points of discussion I have for Moiraine, but I feel like we're already at the perfect spot for to just just keep going because I just I love discussing Moiraine, especially in the first third of this book because yeah. we get to see an entire such a different side of Moiraine. Like for example, losing her cool after her interaction with Rand following the bubble of evil, the way she kind of just mm-hmm. busts into the room with Nynaeve and Egwene, they're interrogating the Black Aja. You know, and what really made that scene for me was how the others treated her at this point, particularly with Joya and Emiko, the, the, the Black Aja prisoners. You know, Elaine specifically thinks that if she or the other two were, like, visibly rustled, the other two, like, the prisoners would have just turned to teasing and taunting. But, you know, right. in, in the face of Moiraine's anger, they're just, they're meek as warm milk. And yeah. honestly, this is kind of a big reason why I have the hots for Moiraine as much as I do <laughs> her presence he's just ah it's just it's so good it's so good sorry I just well, needed be, to get that you'll out you'll be happy you'll be happy to hear uh, you know part of that conversation on the dusty wheel that I had yesterday after talking through this whole <laughs> idea of Moiraine's uh, conflict versus knowledge I I admitted I, I said you know the more I've, I've considered her character the more I'm at least coming to understand why Rob and uh, and why Craig from the Legendarium love Moiraine so much. Love her and, so much. Because I, I, I was always like, you know, like, Moiraine's fine. She's not my favorite. I don't dislike her, but you know, she's just kind of <laughs> there. She did some cool things. Oh, but just... the more I've dug into it on this reread, I'm like, okay, yeah, actually, she she really is an impressive woman. As Craig would say, our bae. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't think did Jared... Did Craig no, say that? No, yeah, Craig I definitely. I was the one who said Bay. Did you say Bay? Oh uh, crap! I think now that you mentioned it, I think you were. I'm sorry, Craig. I didn't mean to throw shade at you there. <laughs> that was Drew. Now that he now that he mentions it, yeah. No, Craig called you out on it. Actually, you guys will see when the mm-hmm. episode comes out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. I mean, th- there were a couple things that that Warren did or thought that I don't agree with. Like she's not perfect. I don't want to claim that she's. You know, great. You know, the scene. Actually, I do want to say she's great, but she's not perfect. I'll stick by that. The scene at the end of this part here that we that we've been discussing for the past twenty minutes now, when Rand makes his proclamations and he f- informs everyone that he's leaving. There's a mo- there's a moment where Moiraine, she has like this this particularly ruthless thought about about the Lady Altima. She wonders about the wisdom of leaving her to her machinations in Kyrian, and she realizes that this lady is too big of a threat. But then she thinks. Perhaps an accident could be arranged in Kyrian. And I'm there like, damn, that is cold. And it's good to be reminded well, that Aes Sedai cannot break break the three oaths and kill directly, but they can get shit done when they need to. Well, and, and I would also say, like, I think it's important that you said it's a good reminder there, because this is not the first time that Moiraine is prepared to kill somebody. Yeah. Or to have somebody killed. I mean, clear back in the eye of the world, she outright says, like, to, 
to the Taviran boys. I would rather see you destroyed than fall into the hands of the No, I, she said something you know, along the lines of, before seeing that happen, I will kill you myself. Which She uses the word destroy. Oh, oh, you're right. She does yeah. say destroy. You're right. Yeah. But, but you know, and there, there were points in, uh, you know, along the way in the inns and in these villages where, where, like, you know, there's an implication that maybe she's ready to have Lan go, like, off some dude who might have learned a little too much about her. It was like, an innkeeper. Yeah, you know, I think so, it was, a, yeah. yeah it, it, well, no, it was the servant guy who's, like, you know, he, he realizes oh, that she's Oh, yes, right before meeting, yeah, know him. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, so stuff like that, like, Warren. She's cold. She's, she's, she's Kyrian and noble she's woman. She's yeah. She's ready to do what she's ready to do. It's kind of hot. <laughs> I had no idea you felt this way, Rob. Sorry, there's there's something about chicks that can kick my ass that I don't know does it for me. <laughs> it's a thing. So uh, let's move on from Warren though. I, I want to talk about uh, Matt in okay. these early chapters. Oh, okay. Because it, you know it, it kicks off with. Uh, one of my favorite, like, one of the most entertaining scenes where Matt is just whooping these noblemen at cards, <laughs> you know, and, and we get we get that familiar Matt that we got in The Dragon Reborn, you know, with his, his gambling, and, and we have the fun that his luck can bring. And then in typical Robert Jordan fashion, he flips the scene on its head, you know, and and throughout the the whole scene... As I said earlier, we we have these references to what Rand is doing. He's using alternative points of view to show what our main characters are doing. You know, we find out from Perrin's point of view and from Rand's point of view that Matt is trying to leave all the time. And we find out from Matt's point of view that Rand is making all of these different, uh, you know, laws and these changes in, in rulership. And, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny with Matt especially, though, because he keeps trying to leave. But he keeps being drawn back by a Taviran, but tied into that is his—it's simply his personality. Like he can't—he can't give up the opportunity to take gold off these idiot noblemen, whom <laughs> he has no respect for. You know, like these guys who who are talking about, oh, maybe I'm gonna marry this noble woman rather than that one because this one has two or three hot chambermaids. Yeah, like, and and yeah. Matt just has like the utmost contempt for these guys. So he's like, "Oh yeah, I can I can take off take more gold from these guys. It's not time to leave." So yet. he kind of grits his teeth. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I I love that though because it's it's <laughs> such a multifaceted personality that Matt has. Like, he's just fun to read. There there's so many different ways you can dig into Matt's character. Yeah, like what's gonna hurt them more? Me sitting here and condemning them, or taking all of their fucking money yeah <laughs> right that's how you really get to a nobleman that's selfish and <laughs> conceited you take his fucking gold yeah oh I, I i don't know i i love matt yeah especially in these early chapters <laughs> you know he, in in the latter parts of this book maybe he gets a little overshadowed by what's going on with Rand, mm. but but here his personality is on full display yeah, no, I def I st I treasure these points of view that we get from Matt. It obviously for the humor. Matt has this very entertaining mix of sarcasm, self-effacement, dry observation that I just find so just hilarious to read. For example, there there's a uh, again during this scene um, when they when he's playing against the the lordlings in the cards and he's taking all of their money, he he delays 
you know, he delays them ending the game by telling them the story of attempting to play Maiden's Kiss, where he explains yep. how they, you know, they, they, they do- suddenly had a dozen spear points against his throat, and he says, I could have shaved myself with a sneeze. Ah, I love that yeah. line. I love that line. There's just something... And, Sorry, go ahead. You sound like you want to say something. Yeah, well, it, it plays back into his his personality where it's worth it to him to embarrass himself in front of these men for the opportunity yes. to, to, to take more of their money, like to embarrass them even more in return. Yeah. Like Matt, Matt is <laughs> as, as other characters say later in the series, he's a surprisingly layered person. It's easy to think of Matt as a caricature as, as like a, a one dimensional kind of, trope of like the trickster but there really is so much more going on with matt than just that and that's something we'll get to in greater depth a few books down the road here he's an onion uh uh yeah uh, i really like lion on the high plane i really like the scene with uh matt and tom and we're kind of getting like a psychoanalysis on matt from tom's point of view (laughs) yes Mm -hmm. Oh, that was great. It's interesting yeah. because it kind of brings up these themes that you get with Matt where he's the reluctant hero and kind of just, he doesn't want to be involved, but he really can't help himself. Yep. Yeah. Peter, what do you think about? You know, it's funny because I think that from the point that I've read to, I don't have as great an appreciation for Matt, so... I largely do put him into that trickster trope. Like, I haven't seen all the layers that you guys have seen. And for a lot of what I've read, you know, he was under that Shadar Logoth curse. So you don't get a lot of development then. Um, I liked your point, though, about how it's not just uh, Tiveran keeping him there or just Deus Ex Machina, if you prefer to think of it that way. You know, it's... Matt is somebody who does enjoy partying and there is parties to be had in tier yeah. oh yeah that he wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to have back home or most anywhere else in the world and so there are these other forces keeping him there other than just the one power right right um but let, let's move on to rand here because rand also has a a few Good. Pretty interesting moments in the early part of this book, other than that oh, yeah. that scene that we've discussed to death already. <laughs> um, uh, one one clearly major moment for him, uh, and it's a lesson that he, I think he has to learn a couple of times across the series, is this idea of uh, power not being the easy button. And it's the moment during the attack on the stone where he comes across this dead girl. And he has Kalindor and he's at the height of his power. He's mm. you know, he's doing these crazy things. He's creating this like shadow spawn hunting lightning tornado and, and all this, like which is a fantastic chapter, by the way. The the stone stands is oh. one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. Uh but it's it's the quiet moment after when he, he says I can do anything with Kalindor in my hands. And he tries to prove it by resurrecting this girl and, you know, re-engaging her body's functions. You know, her heart starts beating again, all this stuff. But he's not God. He can't heal death. And he has to learn this hard lesson that 
just because you have the biggest hammer around doesn't mean every problem can be solved with a hammer. That's a good way to put it. That's a very good way to put it. Well, and up till now, I mean, through the first three books, a lot of what he's doing with the one power is just jumping blindly. And he Mm -hmm. kind of just does things without knowing how he did it. And so here we're just seeing him learn what his limits are. Yeah. That's actually a really good point, too. I didn't consider that. This is one of the first times we see Rand come to the realization that I cannot do this. Because up until now, I mean, (laughs) things have worked out better for worse or for better or worse in his favor you know and i i, I remember being really surprised uh, going on with rand's character here and, and kind of intimidated i guess by the changes in his personality not just in his ability but in his personality as well between just the ending of the well not the ending of the dragon reborn because we didn't get a whole lot of rand in the dragon reborn but take for example the person he is at the ending of book two the great hunt and then the beginning of the shadow rising now everything that's happened to him in the interim you know we didn't uh, we didn't get to see him embrace the concept of ruling beforehand and suddenly we're thrust into this atmosphere of fear and anxiety as he's harshly dealing with these tyrant high lords and i i remember thinking when i was when i was a kid and i was first reading these that rand was being a complete ass and somehow i didn't (laughs) pick up on just how cruel and we've touched on this slightly so far in this episode and how Mm -hmm. evil these high lords are capable of being you know, like, yeah. they struck me as, originally, as garish, incompetent fools, obviously, but and, and as fake, sycophantic weasels at the start of this one. But my younger self never really noticed, like, the most damning things about them, particularly, as we said earlier, with Esteen, during Matt's first point of view. He completely misses Matt's tone when discussing, like, the moralities of noble prosecution for something as simple as having their way with a fisherman's daughter. You know, I was, where I was a little frustrated and kind of confused by Rand's sudden change of personality, I kind of find myself now with this savage glee as he puts these miserable dickheads in their place. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the the casual evil. Yeah. That comes with the power the high lords and mm. ladies wield. And as you said, where, where sorry, there's just an utter disregard for anybody they see below their station. Yeah. It's a it's an eminently self centered. Uh, lifestyle they live and and it's I mean it's reprehensible and it's nice to see Rand as you said like there, there's a bit of glee to it when you <laughs> see Rand putting them in their place and making them realize they are just human beings you know like they're they're not gods the way they want to be well and one of the I, things that I really like about all this is I think one of the major themes of Wheel of Time in general at least as far as I've read it is how, as these prophecies come to be, the structure of power is totally turned on its head, and you have all these rulers and high lords who have, you know, had the lion's share of the power up to this point, but now that the dragon reborn is here and he's held Kalindor, and there really is no denying it, as, as Drew said... They're really just clamoring to figure out where they stand and to uh, preserve their station. And they're realizing as all of this is unfolding that they're not as strong as the tide they're swimming in. Yeah, and, and they're even, you know, in multiple passages from the prophecies and from some of these, you know, histories and things that we get in the epigraphs of these books that talk about that phenomenon. The, the idea of the coming of the Lord Dragon will break all chains and all bonds of man and... And how uh, you know the the low will be raised up and the high will be laid low and 
And uh, of course, the the classic epigraph from Lord of Chaos, which doesn't really count as a spoiler because it's not even part of the, the no, story. But the the epigraph is the you know the lions sing and the hills take flight, the moon by day and the sun by night. Blind woman, deaf man, jacked off fool, let the Lord of Chaos rule. And it's this idea of all order is being overturned. Things that were the way they are, are are being torn apart. Nothing makes sense anymore. The the existing power structures cannot be relied upon with Rand's coming. Yeah, he's the manifestation of that impending change. And we're kind of getting some pretty direct symbolism with this, with the stone falling for the first time. Yeah, yeah. What I really like about Rand's interactions with the High Lords is that for one of the first times in the books, he's dealing with an evil that isn't necessarily the shadow directly. You know, these evil aren't prologues yeah. and half men and forsaken. These are just normal guys who are asses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a good way to put it. I guess they are, aren't they? They're just normal guys who are asses. I mean, it's kind of opening Rand's eyes in that, you know, these are the things he's going to deal with uh, on the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so sticking with Rand, I want to drill down a little bit because we've talked a lot about kind of the high-level things with him, but but his specific interactions with characters. Uh, another one of my favorite scenes in this book is when uh, Elaine and Egwene come to execute their handoff, so to speak, <laughs> and also to attempt to uh, uh, teach Rand. And I I love the character dynamics in this scene. I love seeing uh, Elaine and especially Egwene come to a realization of just how powerful Rand is, and and just how careful they need to be when they're dealing with these new concepts in their lives. You know, we we've already seen the Wonder Girls get berated in, in the White Tower and by Varen outside Tarvalon, you know, about diving into things headlong by by just assuming they can handle a situation and saying, yep, I'm going to go do this. And then they, you know, they find themselves in hot water. And this is yet another situation where had it been anyone other than Rand, you know, they might have died. Yeah, I like. Yeah, I really like to use uh, a Peter's analogy that he just gave us a few minutes ago. They are not as strong as the tide they are swimming in, and they just got yeah, a yeah. very real, like a very real example of exactly that. Yeah, and and it's uh, it's it's also like a, a really neat look into Rand's psyche, even though that scene is from uh, you know Egwene's point of view and, and Elaine's point of view, um, at least at first. Uh, where we see what Rand's power and his inability to control it is doing to his, uh, not only his peace of mind, but his temperament. Because Rand is is a man who, a young man who, for most of his life, has been pretty much in control of, of himself and his surroundings. You know, he, for the situation he grew up in, he was reasonably privileged, right? You know, he was the only son of a successful farmer he had to work hard but he was hardly you know lacking for things he he had a a pretty comfortable life planned out for him with uh with some bright you know prospects in his future and when he's thrust into this new role where suddenly things are out of his control 
both externally and for the first time internally, where he can't even control himself, it clearly frustrates him. You know, and he feels so bad about it. Like we we see, you know, he he scares the two of them. You know, he wraps them up in air and and sh- shields them and and he's like melting the fireplace and the tables and you know, making these like inanimate objects dance and all this stuff and and then afterward we see him express this remorse to Elaine about his inability to control his channel. You know, he, he wants to make the flower for her out of the, uh, the feathers from the bed. And he says, I did this for the Majir, uh, you know, after the, uh, the bubble of evil, but he can't make it work, you know? And, and, and you can just see, even though it's in Elaine's point of view, through her lens, you can see the toll it takes on Rand to to be unable to control himself. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't really have anything else regarding Rand to discuss for the first third of this book. Has everybody had the the chance to have their say about Randall Thor? Anything left to um, mention? I, I think there's some things I could add here. Okay. I mean, let's be honest. Robert Jordan's got a hard problem in developing Rand in some ways because... You know, Rand becoming the Dragon Reborn and everything that goes with that is so central a driver of this series. But at the same time, you've got to develop Rand's, you know, quirks and the things about Rand's personality that endear him to a normal person alongside the fact that he's a terrified boy becoming a man, late teens, who's been, you know, told that he's got to save the world or have it lost to shadow and that he may be driven mad or die. And Mm -hmm. so I I think that we got some character development from Rand in the first third of this book that we were really due for, and it was refreshing. And I think I'll have more uh, to say on that later on in the book, but we, we see him, uh, we see him flirt a little bit in the first part of this book, and we get more of that later on. But uh, I, th- I think that was that was one of the more fun, um, more lighthearted areas in which he develops. Yeah, and and that's kind of why I wanted to go there toward the end of the Rand conversation because I wanted to move into Elaine and okay. how her yeah. relationship with Rand starts up. I think it is something that makes both of them very relatable for for readers, and and yeah maybe this holds a little more weight for me personally than it might for some readers, depending on when you came to the wheel of time. But, you know, I, I came to the wheel of time as, you know, a 12 year old boy where I was just, you know, starting to like, you know, step into that stage of life where, you know, uh, flirting is a thing and and suddenly my my schoolmates and my friends are are finding boyfriends and girlfriends and and beginning to navigate romance and and you know puberty and things like that and uh and so for me this scene always like hit me really hard because i was like wow like it's so cool to see it all come together like this not easy because it is complicated with uh, Egwene's previous uh, ties to Rand, and and it's complicated by Min and things like that. But these few moments we get with just Elaine and Rand in the stone are 
really like pure and fun and just like unabashedly teenaged. You know, they these descriptions of them slipping away to go like make out in the corner for a little bit, you know, and like finding an abandoned hallway and and uh I I loved that. Like it was it was such a great way for Robert Jordan to bring Rand back to a relatable level as he's in the midst of becoming one of the most powerful rulers in the world, you know? Yeah. No, I like Elaine represents to me the knack that uh, Robert Jordan has for giving characters relationship problems without making those characters about their relationship problems. Yes. You know, we have these hit, okay, these hitches in the romance between Elaine and Rand. These are additional problems that they have on top of their own respective duties. Yeah, we, Elaine is a burgeoning Aes Sedai, future queen of Andor, and now hunter of the Black Aja. You know, she has quite a bit on her plate as it is. And with this with this fallout between Rand and Elaine as they split ways from Tyr, that's normally the kind of teenage drama, I'll call it, that bothers me. But in this case, I wasn't bothered at all. And it, I think it's because I can rationally see both points of view, or emotionally, if not entirely logically. You know, you can understand why Rand would be so hesitant to ask Elaine to stay in Tyr because, like, he fears yeah. it would not only make him seem weak and dependent... But it could also be taken as disrespect for her station, or at least her duties, you know? But mm-hmm. on the flip side, you can also empathize with Elaine, who, of course, is kind of hurt by the fact that Rand's apparent solution is to completely and wholeheartedly agree <laughs> with her leaving. Like, yeah, come on, dude. At least tell her that you wish you could ask her to stay. Give her something. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it the think... most teenage thing ever when <laughs> she sends him one letter just yeah. gushing yeah. over him and then another just ripping him a new one? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's some of the fun of this part of the book is that juxtaposition between these teenagers being teenagers and the power structure of the world being turned on its head. And, yeah. like, let's not forget, along with all these things on their plate, that. Rand's got a forsaken that's trying su- to seduce him, <laughs> yeah. and high lords throwing themselves at at him, who are also beautiful. And it's a, gosh, it's a good thing that he's stubborn, right? Like yeah. it's a good thing that's one of the things that defines Rand. So, so on the topic of Elaine's letters, uh, you you just know you know that in her letter she totally had the line, "I am a princess, and I deserve so much better." That sounds like something Elaine would say. With, with like, more or less words, perhaps. 20, yeah. 20 years before the uh, proliferation of texting and dramatic text breakups where girls are like, oh, you know, I'm a princess and I deserve so much better. You could have been mistaken. Yeah, I can see that coming out of her mouth. Like, like it's exactly the kind of thing that <laughs> happens all the time with... with high school relationships you know it, it i i got such a crack out of that when i yeah. sort of had the, that realization you Jordan... you know, that this sorry go ahead no it, you know just th- this idea of like uh in our modern day where you know there's there's some accusations that go around about you know maybe like current generations feel entitled or or you know, the idea that, like, parents raise their children to say, like, oh, you're special. Every child is special. Every girl is a princess. You know, like, all this stuff. And, like, and, but but in this letter, Elaine really is a princess. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> she she totally could have said, I'm the daughter heir of Andor. I deserve more respect than the way you treated me. Yeah, I'm kind of glad like, we didn't get to actually read the letter because that might have sincerely affected my opinion of Elaine. Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's much better to leave those letters unread. I don't know. I want to see the drawings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, eh? Yeah, no, uh, there there was uh, one thing. Oh, do I not have it on here? Oh, I must have actually put it on my other. Shut up, phone. Sorry, guys, that's my phone going off there. I'll, I'll we'll cut that out in the uh, the final. Sorry, there was a great point about Elaine here that I had. It must be on my points for part two, but for some reason it takes place in part one. I don't know why I put it here. No, I didn't. Oh well. What I did want to say though, um, I still remember what the point was. It was how as how Elaine. What she, okay, what she did, that, that the symbolic gesture of what she did when she was first coming, you know, clean with Rain, and she was telling him uh, basically how she felt. You know, we have, you know, Egwene saying, oh, sorry, Rand, you know, I, d- I don't have feelings for you. And then, you know, Rand is like, oh, oh, you know, pretending to be, you know, not hurt, at least according to her point of view, pretending not to be hurt. But oh. Elaine... As, as Rand tries to make this flower for her the same way he did to the Majir, and he fails, and he just drops it, and he just, you know, brushes it off. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, a flower. That's no gift for a daughter heir. But she picks it up, and she keeps it. And she keeps it because he wanted it to be a flower for her. Yeah. And I thought, right there, in that moment, like, Elaine proved to the reader that she is way better for Rand than Egwene ever could have been yep right fully agreed right fully agreed that was a more affectionate move in that one single moment than we ever saw from Egwene towards rand yep so yeah right on 100 percent agreed <laughs> i'm a, i am definitely a, a fan of elaine at this point in the series yeah so let's uh let's move on though um <laughs> unless anybody has uh more to talk about elaine in this section no, I'm really ear, uh, rearing to talk about Perrin. I was going to say, Perrin and Fayil are uh, 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 right there. To... Perrin and the F word. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to uh, cut you off there. No, all you. Okay. Uh, what do you got for Perrin? <laughs> well, and this is where I may begin to piss off some listeners. Um, but I will say that Parent's chapters continue to frustrate the absolute piss out of me. And it's not because of Parent. I'll admit that I do find some of his thought processes to be a bit more foolish than I used to as a kid. Namely, his naive plan to, to follow them through, you know, oh, first off, to sacrifice himself oh. for his people and then to follow them through the ways at a safe distance. You know, but I can say his heart is in the right place. And we can see that everything he does... Perrin does, he does in an attempt to help others. With his few faults, he is overwhelmingly redeemed, in my opinion. My problem with his chapters is that bitchy, self-centered, arrogant, hypocritical, jealous, incomprehensible, and downright irrational c- of a girlfriend he has. Whoa! That is Fayil. I'm sorry, that's the, that's the first time I've ever used that word on this podcast, and it'll probably be the last. But, I stick to my guns. You know, like, Fayil is just... Oh, I, I can't even... She's I just, a 15 I can't even. year old girl, dude. Cut her some slack. I, you, you, I knew a lot of 15-year-old girls when I was parents' age. They weren't quite like that. I mean, sorry. I, I, I knew a lot who were like that. Well, and you don't know too. what they're like 
in the sense that you weren't romantically entangled with all of them like Baron oh, Fayil. I was and with that, a couple, and they were sorry. Well, go ahead. okay, okay, a couple, but that I, I'm just saying that changes the way people act, and so yeah, there's that. Not, but but but, but to your credit, yeah, I'm I'm totally annoyed by Fayil, and I think that you know, I, I, as as a reader at this point, we're probably supposed to be, but one of Perrin's um, defining qualities to me is his loyalty and his sense of duty, and that really comes about in his feeling like he needs to go home and perhaps lay down his life for the people of the Two Rivers. And he's he's got that same sense of duty when it comes to Fael. And as as a reader, you're just like, dude, you you don't have to, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I. Like I, I am frustrated at points with Fael, certainly with Fael, uh, and with Perrin's strict adherence to his sense of duty. Um, clearly, not to the extent Rob is, uh, but ah. you know he he has this tendency to go slightly overboard with things. Perrin is, in his own quiet way, like kind of a drama queen. Like, <laughs> like uh, he's certainly stubborn. Yeah, where where instead of taking a second, which is normally his strength, is is like sitting back and thinking through his problems before addressing them. When it comes to what he perceives as his like cosmic duty, so to speak, he doesn't stop to think about it. He 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 usually is like, all right, what is the most martyr-like approach I can take to this? You know, in, instead of thinking, oh, well, let's see if there's a way I can deal with this and also not have to sacrifice myself or sacrifice my dignity or, or you know, whatever. You know, the it, it's it's frustrating at points. I'll say that. It's frustrating. <laughs> Peter? Perrin? What do you think so far? I don't know. I love him personally, and I think I don't think it's a mark against him. I think it's a mark for him that he is willing to leave Rand behind to go help his people. I don't have a problem with that. I just have a problem with his like fatalistic mentality behind <laughs> that decision. Where where he's like I'm going to do this and I'm going to go die. You know, like <laughs> Yeah. I In a way though, I'm doesn't do this by myself. I I I can't let anybody else help me. I need to go do this futile, you know, and go on this it, futile crusade. Like as, as far as Fael goes, isn't sometimes she good for him in that she pulls him out of that? Yes, I think so. Hmm. Yeah, which I is mean, also why I, I don't feel as strongly that. about Fael. I can I can yeah, admit I, that. <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. She she has her moments of um, egging Perrin on and putting him away from his comfort zone so that he has to take a step back and think about things in a in a different way than than he would normally. Uh, and and usually that turns into him making a better decision, but pr- part of the problem is that most of the time we're in Perrin's head while we're seeing him deal with Fayil, and Perrin doesn't understand Fayil, right? Like like she's she comes from a foreign culture. She's a lot younger than he is. Yeah, I keep forgetting and, how much younger she is. Yeah, well, well. So I'll I'll clear this up. When Robert Jordan initially wrote her, she was like fifteen, hmm. uh, but he retconned it because there were some, you know, 
maybe valid, maybe less concerning uh, issues that readers brought up about the fact that Perrin's like a 19, 20 year old dating a 15 year old. You yeah. Know? Um, and like, and I can see that, although I would also say like, Hey, you know, look at the this world is they're a living kind in. It's of, a yeah, very different exactly. kind of society, a... but, but he did retcon it and made her, I think like 17 instead. So yeah. she's still younger, but she's not as young. Um, it's not, yeah, but, but like I said, it's, it's all from parents point of view and he doesn't understand her. So it's easy to get frustrated with Fayil because Perrin is frustrated with Fayil. <laughs> and it's another one of these situations where, like, Robert Jordan is so good with point of view that it's easy to get consumed in the mindset of your current character's point of view. This happens a lot with Egwene that we'll talk about down the road. Uh, it happens a lot with Perrin. It happens a lot with Matt. It happens a lot with Rand. You know, there are there are points where it would behoove readers to maybe take a step back and consider context and and try to look at things outside of the lens of the point of view character you're reading. Well, I I don't want to make everything I have to say about Perinebera like seem like it involves his wife or his wife, his at this point his girlfriend. Um, <laughs> because he does have a lot going on in his own right. But I just I want to say it's still frustrating on that front too because once again Everything in his life seems to be trying to screw him. You know, for, like, he now has to deal with Berylaine's unwanted advances. He has to deal with Fayil's almost understandable jealousy. He has Moiraine maneuvering around him and trying to keep an eye on him, as well as his guilt about the, you know, the danger his people face for what he assumes is his fault. And all the while, he's caught between the proverbial jaws of the the wolves invading his mind, Randall Thor tugging on his soul as a Taviran. I, I don't know how a 19-year-old kid keeps his sanity through all of that. Maybe he doesn't. Yeah, maybe yeah he I does. was going to say. One, so, yeah, sanity is a, is, a, is a flexible term there, I suppose, in this case. You know? like, take his uh, okay, now his plan to follow them through the ways to avoid asking Fayil if he may accompany them. Yeah, okay. Pretty childish. I mean, I, I, under no, I mean, under no circumstances. Under no circumstances should he have given that little brat exactly what she wanted. But there, <laughs> I want to say that there are ways around that. Like, okay, off the top of my head, she's Saldean. She was raised in a borderland household. All Perrin would have to do would be to point out how childish she's being in a using Loyal's honor against him, and by extension. Perilee, Perrin's ability to save his people (laughs) over, like, holding that over his head for (laughs) ransom for her petty demands. Stupid bitch! (laughs) That would have shut her down, I think. Or at least it would have given Bane and Chiad something to think about. But rather than sit down and calmly demonstrate to Fael what a nasty, sadistic, conniving little bitch she is, he just chooses for the most part, to just adopt the suffering as if, you know, it's just my due. You stand up for I'm, yourself, dude! I'm sorry. Sorry, did you just call Perrin Perily? Yeah, no, sorry. I, I wanted to say Perrin's ability, and I said Perily for some stupid reason. Okay, okay. I'm going to do that. I've probably done it 10 or 20 times previously up to this point. You know, episode 34 of the podcast. I will continue to do that in the future. I guarantee it. I have this terrible fucking habit of mashing words or even phrases together. What if you listen back in the Dragon Reborn? I meant to say, beating around the bush, 
or beating a dead horse. I couldn't decide which one to say. So I said beating a dead uh, or uh, beating off a dead horse or something like that. It was no, very, you didn't say beating off a dead horse. I know that. Maybe beating a, a dead bush or yeah, like beating, beating around bush. the horse. Be- yeah, but... beating that horse <laughs> yeah. into the ground or something like that. It was <laughs> no, beating not... a horse into the ground. I, yeah. I think getting back on track. Firstly, yes. can we just say, gosh, poor Loyal. Like, oh seriously? my God, Loyal. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. But, but then, to... then you, you talk about you talk about yeah the Saldean culture that Fael's from. He needs to just sit her down and tell her how childish she's being. Let's let's keep in mind that there's like a storm of emotions and hormones surrounding these two's relationship. Since when are you ever gonna be able to get anything done rationally in this kind of? <laughs> maybe a it's just the fact like, that I'm 27. Maybe, now you know right like maybe we're just too old to see things through that lens appropriately (laughs) yeah we're not old i don't want to say we're old we're gonna have a bunch of people saying oh y'all are so young we're old enough (laughs) we're older than parent is i've certainly understood fail more the older i am i don't love her in any way but i I think she becomes a much better character as this series progresses without spoiling i'm not going to say exactly why but i mean i my biggest problem with fail is in this book hands down from here on out my my improvement my my uh opinion of fail only improves from this book forward wow okay okay yeah surprising Uh, eh after you know how (laughs) how uh nasty i was being about her earlier yeah the way you opened it yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Well, sorry, but I just... <laughs> uh, she pissed well, me off so much Before we move book. on, uh, you know, I, I think we should sort of revisit Matt a little bit, because we didn't talk about... Oh, okay. Um, we didn't talk about the Redstone Doorway. We didn't talk about the Aethon. Mm. And his answers, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, one thing I want to like discuss straight away is the fact that Matt cheated the Aethon in this. Hmm. He, you know, they're... they're uh, their whole covenant is you you ask three questions and you get three answers and matt matt asked uh more than that and got more than that um i I gotta see if i can find the the scene um oh man it's in doorways right i'm gonna get you an e-reader for christmas that's what i'm gonna do oh i i mean i have uh i have ibooks on my phone but I don't. I don't want to. You're no pleb. I don't want to drop a hundred and thirty dollars <laughs> on the collected Wheel of Time right now when I already own multiple copies of all the books. Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, I did it, but that was years and years after I bought them. And plus, half yeah. of my half of my <laughs> my physical copies are just obliterated and destroyed, and just they can barely be held together. Oh, it's into the doorway is the name of the chapter. Okay, so Matt. Um... So he first uh, he first asks them. Let's see here. So they say, "Enter and ask according to the agreement of old." You know, and he says, "Should I go home to help my people?" And they say, "You must go to Roydian." Answer one. Answer one. Question one. Roydian, he barked. The light burned my bones to ash. If I want to go to Roydian. And my blood on the ground, if I will. Why should I? You are not answering my questions. You are supposed to answer, not hand me riddles. And they say, if you do not go to Roydian, you will die. Question two, answer, answer two. two. Yep. 
And they say the strain is too great, too great. Ask, ask. And he says, you know, burn your soul for a craven heart. I will that. Why will I die if I do not go to Roydian? And they say, you will have sidestepped the thread of fate, left your fate to drift on the winds of time, and you will be killed by those who do not want that fate fulfilled. Now go. You must go quickly. That is three questions and three answers. But he refuses to leave. And he says, what fate? Burn your hearts, what fate? What fate? And they, they freak out. And they say, to marry the daughter of the nine moons, to die and live again, and live once more a part of what was, to give up half the light of the world to save the world. He got six answers <laughs> on four questions. Yeah. <laughs> like, he broke all the rules. <laughs> he knows how to play the game. So Matt is this like a yeah. combo of but, Matt but, uh, being Matt and Matt being Taviran? Yeah. yeah, well, certainly all, Taviran plays into yeah. it because Rand was also in there yeah, they at that moment, out. and it was, yeah. Do um, we ever get an answer or any explanation out there about what exactly is happening when they say it's like causing a strain? Uh, yes, uh, but that brings some spoilers into things, so I'm not mm -hmm. going to address that right now. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's funny how everybody concentrates on his three answers as the, you know, marry the daughter of the nine moons, give up half the light of the world, and, uh, oh my gosh, once more a part again of once was. What? What did I just well, say? That was like the second, yeah, li live once more a part of what was that, but that was the second half of the, how am I blanking on this? Um, die and live again, duh. Yeah, so people concentrate on those as the the three answers he gets, but they're not even the three answers he was given. Like, the real well, the three, three answers the were, go to Roydion, if you don't, you'll die, and you'll die because you'll have sidestepped the thread of fate. Like, yep. <laughs> breaking I, the I rules. just find that, that really amusing, that, that not only did he break <laughs> the rules here, but the, the real three answers he got are the three answers that nobody concentrates on. <laughs> yeah. So... You uh, really quickly want to discuss Egwene. If I have to. Uh, if you... <laughs> yeah, no, okay. Well, I mean, uh, pretty much everything I have about Egwene is bitching for this part, but I do already have some compliments for Egwene in the next part. So don't worry, everybody. Because what I'm about to say may be a little controversial. No, let's just, here's the thing. A lot of people <laughs> like, really, really like Egwene, and she can do no wrong. Check this out. Um, when she confess, okay. When so when she and, and Elaine go to do the whole handoff of the parcel that is the Dragon Reborn between the two of them, yeah. her entire per like her entire attitude going into that is, I hope Rand doesn't take it too badly when I confess I no longer have feelings for him. And then she yep. finds out, oh well, he claims that he feels the same way. Poor guy. It must be hard lying so that he can save face. <laughs> yep. I was just like, wow. <laughs> the sheer ego. She has such ego. a high opinion of herself. Oh, yeah. my fucking God. Sorry, I'll let you guys jump in at this point if you'd like to. Egwene, what do you guys think of Egwene at this point in The Shadow Rising? Jared, take it away. Um, Stubborn and willful. And okay, so not, not knowing what she's doing. <laughs> Pretty much... Um, uh, never mind. That would be spoilers. 
Peter, so I'm I'm intrigued to hear what Peter thinks of Edwink because you know we've we've all read the series. We might be spoiling entirely. his opinion going forward, like kind of. What's the uh, word I'm looking for? We're not talking about future events or anything. We're just talking about Elaine's at, or Egwene's attitude in in the first part of this book here. So, Peter, what do you think of her? I, my opinion is books? not impartial. I've been poisoned on Egwene from the get go. Yeah, that's <laughs> around <laughs> Drew. I, and Pat. I I mean, I will say that she's brave and strong willed, and those are agreed good qualities in and of yep. themselves. But I. I would like to think that without outside influence, I would also identify her as quite self-absorbed. Um, but I've been beaten over the face with that. So, <laughs> I mean, I like you said, she does have good qualities, and there are admirable moments with her in the series, especially in these early books. You know, I talked about it on our Dragon Reborn episodes. I mostly don't have a problem with her in the Dragon Reborn. There are some scenes with Nynaeve and Elaine on the ship at the end that really annoy me. Uh, her relationship with Nynaeve in particular is a yep. sticking point with me. But, but you know, she has a lot of believable motivations, and she has admirable qualities. She's strong, she's driven, mm-hmm. she refuses to back down in certain situations, and uh, and she does have a voracious appetite for learning, and which I was, is impressive. I was impressed with her at times in... Uh... In the Great Hunt, when she, I mean she she steps up to the plate and getting out of uh, the situation when they're they're captured by the Shanshin. Yeah, and, and so it's it, it's a like I may come across as like an Egwene hater, and I and I will say like I do not like her, but it's it's not like a blind hate. I'm not totally unwilling to see any good in her character because there is good in her character. I just find her, like, when I approach Egwene, in a lot of ways, I approach it as if, like, if she were somebody that I knew in real life, I would absolutely not get along with her. Like, like she's so self-centered, she's so Arrogant. hypocritical in so many situations, like, like I, I don't yeah. get along with people like that, you know, and, and Egwene especially in these first few books has her moments that really annoy me but for the most part I'm fine with her hmm. and I like I'll I leave it at that. I'll reiterate what I said at the top of my Egwene points here I do have more positive to say about her in the next part there I mean they're like Egwene is a character that I do have plenty of reasons to root for later in the series um, but at this point in this book she is pissing me off. In the future, I will have better things to say. More, th- you know. Yeah, most yeah. of the stuff I have to say about Egwene is coming up in the part two. Mm-hmm. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, that's the other thing. There just isn't a whole lot to discuss about Egwene in the first yeah. third of this book. I mean, it's interesting to see these glimpses of Teleronria as she's starting to flex her muscles as a dreamer. And we're oh, getting certainly. S- yeah, some more of, her, uh, of these visions in her dreaming that are pretty interesting and pretty fascinating to read. Uh... But yeah, we'll have. I'll definitely have a lot more complimentary on her front going forward. For sure. Yeah. Um, are there any more characters that we want to discuss before we uh, move on? Uh, you know what? I, I just want to discuss really, really quickly. I don't have a lot to say. I just have one particular thing I want to say about Elida. Okay. Uh, as, like with her, with that brief point of view we got from Elida in the uh, in the prologue, 
You know, yeah. I, I like Elida at this point, not as a person, but as a character. And that's because I think it's it's very easy in fantasy and sci-fi to to write an antagonist simply because you need a bad guy. You know, but and it well, I guess it's not really the prologue. It's chapter one, isn't it? This book doesn't have a prologue, right? Yeah, I was about to mention. Yeah, that, yeah. I forgot to bring that up in the <laughs> style discussion. This is the only book in the series that doesn't have a prologue in the whole series. In the whole series. Oh wow. Yeah. Damn. But yeah. Uh, but but no, I I agree with you on this because it, it would be easy to write like a villain for the sake of a villain, but Elida's motivations here are very believable. You know, oh, yeah. she's a competitive woman in a competitive environment, and is seeing a weakness in her rival. Why wouldn't she? pursue that especially right? especially considering her her reasons for doing so we find out that like right here we find out that her foretelling about randall thor bringing pain into vision and division to andor has really shaken her because she had a previous foretelling that yes where, where she foretold that the royal line of andor holds the key to victory in the last battle that i thought that was such an excellent little detail and it's such so perfectly timed that, that Robert Jordan gave us about Elida's motivations. And it adds a whole lot more dimension to Elida as a character at this point in the series. I thought it was it was superb. Yeah, and that's actually a really big point. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm super glad you brought this up. Uh, that's the first time in the series we get that foretelling. We get that information about that the, uh, the Royal House of Andor is the key to the last battle. And that's a big bomb to drop right now because uh, you know like all the prophecies we've heard thus far just talk about the dragon reborn you know we haven't had any any outside influence on what we should be expecting for the last battle and now we have this the royal house of andor is the key to the last battle and we're like whoa okay what does that mean especially early on in this book where we just had a scene with Gawain right there, right? And then we go to Tyr and we have Elaine hunting the Black Aja and we, we realize probably more imminently than we had before the current Royal House of Andor is very much enmeshed in events right now. So it, it puts another question in the backs of our minds for how we should approach the story going forward and and what we should be looking for as as we're trying to puzzle out where all the threads of the story are going. Sweet. Heck yes. Yeah, yeah so uh, moving on, I, I kind of just want to say I, I'm going to skip over the like deep lore. Deep penetrative and, um, lore. Yeah, penetrative Actually, lore. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the the new thing. Uh, uh, and and uh, listener questions. Since we have Peter on the podcast, we don't want to spoil anything for him. Uh, um, but I I wanted to just kind of open it up for like general final thoughts. You know, before we go into the final draft. Uh, Peter, you got anything more you want to talk about? Oh man, <laughs> that's a Put very vague right question. Yeah. <laughs> um. No. Okay. Not at this point. What, what stood out to you? What, what What were some of your favorite scenes in these uh, these early pages? I mean, of course, I loved the stone stands. Yeah. That was a really good battle. I I Here liked where we started off with the uh, bubble of evil because I liked that the book started more quickly. Um, 
Hardheads was kind of fun in that it, you know, put the, the characters' uh, teenage angst in uh, context <laughs> in, in the background of these earth-moving earth events. And then, of course, um, putting the High Lords in their place through Moraine's uh, perspective. Uh, think yeah. Mm, heck yes. Okay. Yeah. I agreed with everything there. It was so good. Jared, what about you? Well, definitely Stone Stands would be my favorite. Um, and I know some people would disagree with this, but I've always liked Min. So I particularly like how it opens with her at the White Tower. And actually, there's a lot of important stuff going on there. Yeah. With her viewings. Uh, yeah, in general, very portentous. Yes, yes. In general, I would just say I really like the pacing in this book and I like how I mentioned earlier that's just, you know, the stakes are higher. Yeah. Rob, what about you? What do you got? Uh, I've got two final thoughts. The The first is just wondering again, like a sort of what if scenario. Um, I, I would really love to have actually seen the scene where the Wonder Girls take back the Omerlin's letter from Matt. Because uh, you already know exactly how that scene would have gone. And you're lying if it's not hilarious. I mean, they show up, all smiles. Matt immediately <laughs> sees through it, realizes why they're there, calls them on it. And then he just, you know, denies having it anymore. Or claims that maybe he lost it. I was walking down the street and the wind just took it out of my hand. And they're just like, yeah, huh? And they just turn that room inside out. I just, ah. Uh, yeah. I figured that scene, that scene would have been a gem. I just, it's too bad it happened off screen. Um, I, I hope they show that in the TV show. Oh, that'd be great. I oh, really yeah. Do. And my last, I suppose, like, just miscellaneous thought, I just, I want to say that I am so, this is more of a style thing, I suppose. I am so digging Jordan's proclivity for that scripture-style epigraph. You know, at the beginning of mm. this book, and I quote, The shadow shall rise across the world and darken every land, and even to the smallest corner, and there shall be neither light nor safety. And he who shall be born of the dawn, born of the maiden, according to prophecy, he shall stretch forth his hands to catch the shadow, and the world shall scream in the pain of salvation. All glory be to the Creator, and to the light, and to he who shall be born again. May the light save us from him. Oh, I'm so excited! Just the wheel of time. I'm just ah. Yeah. I just this. Yeah, I can't. I incredible. I'm totally white girling right now because I can't even. <laughs> <laughs> Go get your uh, pumpkin spice latte after this. <laughs> it's the right time of year, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. No, I I think that's great. I'm glad you brought up the epigraph because it's, you know, a lot of people tend to concentrate on a couple of the epigraphs, like the one I quoted earlier, you know, mm. the Lord of Chaos one, and, and the one at the end of Crossroads of Twilight, and, uh, you know, the, um, We Rode on the Winds of the Rising Storm. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I have so, a good story those, about that one for later. Uh, but, but I think some of these that are early on that have what you said, this, this, like, biblical tone and style are, uh, I mean, beautiful to read, for one thing. It really shows Robert Jordan's ability to move a person with words. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you just read that out, and I had to like, kind of, you know, brush a little uh, tear out of the corner of my eye. Like, <laughs> it, it's, it's beautiful writing. I felt so, like I was delivering a sermon there. I got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, but, no, I, I think... Uh, I think I'm about 
set to move into the final draft here. Yeah, so, dude. Uh, I mean, uh, Rob, what do you got for good. me? Good. I'll start us off because I have a confession to make. In the preparation for this episode, I went into it assuming, wrongly so, that we were doing two episodes for The Shadow Rising and not three. So I actually read up to the halfway <laughs> point in this book. Um, and my thematically appropriate beer, which I am holding in my hand right here, hmm? it Ooh, uh, right. it has to do, yeah, thematically speaking, with something that we actually haven't oh. quite arrived at yet. So I am just going to say that throughout this episode, you can see the beer is unopened. What I've been drinking so Ooh. far in this episode is just a bottle of Dasani water. Nice. Some good old-fashioned <laughs> dihydrogen monoxide you know, grease up those organs. Being healthy. Heck yes. <laughs> Hydrate. It's important. But for the next episode, which we are about to record, I will be opening this one. So a guy walks into a bar and he says, I'd like a glass of H2O. <laughs> and then the guy comes in after him and says, I'll have some H2O too. He dies. And then he died. Yeah. <laughs> Heck yeah. All right. Uh, so Zing. Jared, am, Hold on. Pat put a freaking uh, uh, kick and rim shot at the end of that one. Sorry. <laughs> it will be in right, there we're now. Gonna, we're going to cut that out. Uh, uh, Jared, um, uh, am I correct in saying you do not have a beer for today? That is correct. Okay. Uh, and Peter, I believe your your beer is for part two as yeah, well. Yeah, my beer is for part oh, two. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. So, Drew, so, you better bring it, dude. Uh, well, that's good because I brought it. Oh? Today, I am drinking... A beer from Grimm Brothers Brewing Company in Loveland, Colorado. Oh. Which is a fantastic little brewery. They do a lot of like German-style lagers and stuff. And uh, this particular one is a Lemon Radler, which is a, a, essentially a shandy. You know, it's like a, a beer fruit juice mix. It's a Lemon Radler, and, and there's like a whole origin story behind this. You can go look up about like a, a guy who was like had a bar along the route on a bike race and ran out of beer, so he started mixing lemonade with it. Um, but yeah, this is this is super, super delicious, very drinkable. But more importantly, it is called Maiden's Kiss. Bullsh! What? Bullsh! What? Uh-uh, I do not accept the fact that you found a beer, once again, that is that thematically appropriate. I don't understand. Like, are you like, secretly a millionaire and you actually own a fucking brewery and you are just fucking with my head and actually coming out with all these little, very specifically, suspiciously, specifically named things? Beers? Maiden's Kiss? Are you fucking shitting me? Sorry, I had to get that out of my <laughs> system. I see it. I just don't believe it. I, I'm, now I fucking figure I'm hallucinating or some shit. He can't do- How do you fucking continue to do this shit? Sorry, we're gonna have we had like what three curse words in the entirety of the episode, and now we've got like fourteen out of me in the past minute. There's no way that Drew can keep this up for two more sections of Shadow Rising. All right, so yeah, that is uh, our wrap for episode thirty-four of the Eking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we're gonna be covering up to chapter 42 of The Shadow Rising, so we're going to be doing three episodes for this book, as it deserves, as it so richly deserves. Um, you know, if, as always, if you enjoy our content and uh, you want to help us bring out more of this stuff for you, you want to get access to some of our uh, exclusive short episodes or early access to our regular episodes, check out our Patreon page, 
uh, patreon.com slash inking out loud. Uh, all of our proceeds are going toward our sound engineer and our artists. You know, we're, we're not out here to like make a living off this stuff. We just want to pay the people who are supporting us. So, uh, yeah, check that out. And Ayo. as always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. Ridiculous. And with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Oh, yeah. And our special guest, Captain Jared Livingston. And our <laughs> second special guest, Mr. Peter. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks so much. Hey, guys. Awesome. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs>